Hey, fellow Mathers, before we get into this episode, we want to share with you how you can get access to free content, professional learning that will keep your students engaged and doing the math that matters. Get ready to go to this link, mathisfigureoutable.com slash challenge. That's right. Registration is open for the free Math is Figure Outable challenge that's starting May 15th and runs to the 17th at 7 p.m. Central. We're going to have three nights jam-packed with learning and routines that you can take straight to your classroom. In these challenges, we have a great time. We do some math, talk about classroom experiences, give away super cool bonuses and prizes. You won't just walk away with routines that are naturally engaging and encourage your students to think mathematically. You'll also have a chance to win over 6 k worth in prizes, including a few virtual PD sessions for your school. I'll be joined by my wonderful co-host, Kim, and special guest, Jenna Labe. You can register at mathisfigureoutable.com slash challenge for a fantastic learning experience. That's mathisfigureoutable.com slash challenge. Now on to the show. Hey, fellow mathematicians. Welcome to the podcast where math is figureoutable. I'm Pam. And I'm Kim. And you found a place where math is not about memorizing and mimicking, waiting to be told or shown what to do, but it's about sense-making, noticing patterns, and reasoning using mathematical relationships. We can mentor students to think and reason like mathematicians. Not only are algorithms and step-by-step procedures not particularly helpful in teaching mathematics, but rotely repeating those steps actually keeps students from being the mathematicians they can be. We have a huge topic today, super big, big, big topic, uh, building thinking classrooms and Peter Lilydahl's work is super popular in education circles. Um, he gets brought up quite a bit and we have actually done quite a bit of his stuff, right? And uh, mm-hmm, have found mm-hmm. success with his research and his ideas. And so we wanted to talk a bit about that today. Yeah, excellent. Um, Just recently in our state conference, the Conference for the Advancement of Mathematics Teacher Teaching here in Texas, um, I was able to hear him again. I've heard him several times. And the first time that I heard him speak, it was super interesting because his first chapter, and usually, at least when I've heard him speak, um, usually his first thing that he talks about is um, how we're not his, his, how we're not thinking in classrooms. So, like his book is yep. called "Building Thinking Classrooms," and um, he talks about how what he saw when he went into these classrooms is mimicking. And mm-hmm. it was really kind of I, I came out if you remember I turned to you and I was like I, I looked at you I pointed and I was like has he heard me before? <laughs> I know that sounds maybe a little a little arrogant. I think the two of us were working kind of in tandem or parallel. Maybe that's what I want working in parallel on this idea of what does it mean to actually help students think and reason in classrooms and not mimic. And it was just kind of ironic that we were sort of using some of the same words and phrases uh, to describe what we were seeing and what we knew could be true. Um, So completely agree with that part of his work, that that take on education is that we don't want, I mean, the whole intro that I just Bread was it's not about rotely repeating um, steps, rotely repeating procedures. Right. We want students thinking, what does that look like? And what are some of the um, things? I think he does a really nice job in his first chapter describing, uh, well, maybe I'll even give it more than the first chapter of describing some things that students do to um, look like they're thinking and not be yeah. thinking. <laughs> ways students get um, uh, out of thinking and, and ways teachers kind of get 
trapped into to, um, promoting that behavior and the, the, the questions that they're willing to answer, for example. I think he does a really nice job of bringing some of those things to light. He also, in his book, has a kind of four-part framework or this, this chunk of 14 things to do that he suggests that you do kind of in these four chunks. So there's these kind of 14 teaching practices. I'm not exactly sure what he calls them. I probably should have looked at that. 14 teaching practices, I think, that will help you create a thinking classroom, many of which I agree with, maybe not quite all of them. And we can talk about that in a little bit, at least not quite to the degree that um, I see some people implementing. But I thought today we would spend some time talking about where we agree, the kinds of things that both Dr. Lily et al. and I would promote and, and think are very useful. And for those of you who have not done much with his work, just give you a little bit of an overview of my understanding of at least some parts I am not in this podcast episode attempting to represent him completely. So uh, know that I'm, I, I mean, he wrote a whole book y'all. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but I am going to try to give you the highlights that I kind of think um, are important, at least to consider at first. So of his kind of 14 teaching practices that he would uh, suggest that you try again, he said, he suggests that you do it in these four chunks so that you, you start the first chunk. And then when that works, get that going, then you implement the next chunk. So I want to start with that first chunk. In that first chunk, he's got three teaching practices. He would recommend that you start in your classroom. One of them is that you give students thinking tasks, meaning you don't give them tasks that they already know how to do, tasks that you've taught them to memorize the steps through, but tasks that they actually have to dive in and reason about. But you do that at vertical non-permanent surfaces. That's quite a mouthful. All that means is that the surfaces are vertical and they are erasable. So he did some testing with where kids were writing with uh, markers on horizontal surfaces like desks. Um, and he found that students didn't engage quite as quickly. He put chart paper up vertically on walls. And because it wasn't erasable, he found that students didn't engage as quickly or as much or um, as collaboratively. And so I'm not going to mention maybe all the things that he says about those, but he suggests that if you can put students up in, at these vertical non-permanent surfaces, so vertical, they're, they're like a whiteboard or a chalkboard, and uh, so they're writing on something that can be erased, and you put them in groups. But very specifically, he suggests that you uh, visibly, randomly assign the groups and that you change those groups up often. And he's going to be very clear that it will take a while for this to begin. But let me just maybe say that part again. So you could picture in the classroom where you've got places all around the classroom that are have these vertical erasable surfaces. So you could picture whiteboards all around the room. You could picture um, chalkboards all around the room or some kind of uh, white book um, flip chart uh, all around, you know, something that, they, that students can write on and erase. You have visibly chosen random groups. So what does that mean? That means that you've done something where kids can see that the groups are random. So if you say, all right, today, today, everybody, here are your groups and you read them off. Kids are like, yeah, you created those groups. You, you made them mm -hmm. on purpose. And mm -hmm. he thinks that it's super important for kids to be, for groups to be randomly chosen and that kids believe that it's random. So a way to do that is as kids are coming in, you hand them a, a card from a deck of cards. You you know how many cards are in there and, and so that they'll split up into those groups evenly. 
And then you say, okay, the twos are over here. The threes are over here. The sevens are over there. They, they go to their, their assigned place. And now uh, they, they kind of will believe you more that the groups were random. One of the reasons I think he suggests that groups are random is that the students will begin to learn uh, or they'll, they'll, what's the word I want? They'll accept the fact that the groups are random. And so they've got to learn to work with whoever they get because nobody chose the groups to be this way. So I guess, I guess I'm going to have to be cooperative, you know, like actually work. And and he, he admits that it will take a while for that to happen, that it might take, um, I think he says a couple of weeks or more, maybe, maybe yeah. a couple of weeks, like two and a half weeks, I think is the, the number I heard him say for kids to like, Oh, like this is going to be a thing. Like it's not going mm-hmm. away. So I guess I yeah. better learn to work with you. Yeah. <laughs> right. It, you can picture Kim, how many times in education is there this bandwagon thing? Yeah. Oh, once or yes. twice. Right. Yep. And the kids are like, yep. I'll just wait you out. I'll wait yep. out until you stop doing the thing. Yep. So you kind of have to get past that honeymoon stage. And, and then, and then he says, students dig in. They mm-hmm. dig in and they w- will work together. Um, he found that if you put them at these vertical surfaces, students will write faster. They'll pick up that marker. They'll write, they'll, they'll start getting their ideas out. He also, one of the things I thought was super interesting is when I heard him say that if students are sitting um, at desks um, and maybe in groups and they're supposed to be working together, that to opt out of the work, they will lean away from the group. And if the room is like a typical room and kids are kind of sitting all on their desks and they're maybe in groups, to lean out of that group is not very noticeable. Um, mm-hmm. Nobody's going to be able to sort of tell that they kind of leaned out of the group. But if you have students around the room all standing at these vertical surfaces writing, if a student is going to lean out of that work, then they kind of lean into this middle of the room where there is no one. And mm-hmm. that's way obvious. Like if you, if you want to stick out, then you, you've, you've opted out. In other words, opting out puts you in the limelight that, that kids don't necessarily want to be in. And yeah. so instead of opting out of the work in order to kind of blend in and not stick out, they'll actually lean into the work and they'll actually like be doing things because at a moment's glance, you can look around the room and see who's got stuff up on their board. Mm-hmm. You know, if there's nothing on a group's board, that might be a little bit of uh, social pressure to start working. Um, if you've leaned out of the work, uh, kids can see that they can see that you're not involved in that. Could, there could be some sort of social pressure to kind of like, uh, so I, what he's suggesting is you can kind of use the dynamics that are naturally occurring in class um, to promote thinking. Like let's, right. let's promote kids digging in and getting, getting the work done. So those are interesting things to, to start to try to, to um, put in your classroom. And I think, I think they are enticing and that's maybe too strong of a word. Um, <laughs> help me Kim. It's, a desirable? No, a an attractive. Ha! That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> an attractive thing for someone to say, "Hey, do these things, and it'll fix everything." Like, like, yeah, like do these yep. things and, and check it out. Everybody's going to be everybody's going to be thinking. Now, we've tried some of this, Kim. Yeah. So, um, both in workshops that we give uh, yep. when we're in person, and yep. also in my university classes, yep. I have put students up at vertical non-permanent surfaces. Um, you know, again, vertical erasable surfaces. I put them into visibly randomly chosen groups. Um, another yep. thing I didn't mention is you give them one marker for the group. So they have to kind of share the marker. Um, not everybody's uh, a reason for that is if you give everybody a marker, they can all just start writing on the board and they don't have to be cooperative in any way. 
So if there's only one marker, then there's more conversation about what goes up on the board, who's going to be writing it before something maybe goes up there. They're kind of agreeing or, you know, they're, 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 they're kind of encouraged to look at each other's work because what are you going to do while you're standing there while someone else is writing? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, how did I start that sentence? Oh yeah. So, so we've, we've, we've done some of that. And um, I don't know, Kim, if you want to like, what have, what have you found? Like did oh. it flop horribly? Oh gosh. No. Like I, I was going to say that you've been saying students. Um, but I think that these behaviors that he described are absolutely true with adult learners as well. Right. We see, um, <laughs> <That's true. laughs> when, when, when we're working in a workshop and we see teachers, uh, want to disengage, uh, I love as mm-hmm. a teacher, you can glance around and you're like, Oh, uh, let me go to that group. This person because it's kind of on the outskirts of the room, right? We're not we're not looking at a pile of kids in the middle. I love the vertical non-permanent surfaces around the room because you can see at a quick mm-hmm. glance, like who's engaged and who's not, and who's working and who's having conversation. It just makes it really nice to be able to take a pulse of the room at a glance, like you mentioned. Um, oh, can I yeah. can I add to that? Don't don't forget the yeah. other thing we we're going to say. So not only a pulse of engagement, but also what kind of math is happening. Yes. Like I can look, I can look at these surfaces. Like I can't, I can't yeah. peer over kids' heads to see what's happening on their, on their table or their yeah. desk, but I can look around the room at teachers or kids and I can see on these vertical surfaces, ah, oh, that group's working on this and that group's kind of this, or that group's really stuck or that group's, yep. um, and that, that pulse is super helpful. Uh, I hope you yeah, didn't but, forget the other thing. No, no, no. So I, I was just gonna say, it helps you to make decisions as a teacher of uh, groups to visit and in what order and what the conversation is going to be about mm-hmm. as you're crossing the room to have conversation with them. Nice. Nice. So y'all, we, we jumped in and we tried some things. Um, we did find that people will pick up a pencil sooner, or I guess it's really a pen if they're on this non-permanent surface. Um, we did find that uh, teachers would dig in and work a little more cooperatively um, mm-hmm. sooner and more cooperatively. We did find uh, some, some things that, that made enough sense that we continue to do that kind of work sometimes in workshops. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'll start off um, saying, uh, or maybe I'll continue this, this idea of we wholeheartedly support his idea that we want to create thinking classrooms. Yes. Um, we might push back just a little bit on how often or mm, yeah, I'll just say how often we do the vertical non-permanent surfaces, visibly randomly chosen groups. And uh, we'll also talk a little bit about what those thinking tasks um, look like. But maybe the biggest thing that I want to just say in closing today is for this episode is I think that he's done a super job. And we only talked about three of his teaching practices, and we'll talk more yeah. about the rest of them um, in future episodes. I think he's done a really, really good job of talking to us about um, how how we can create thinking classrooms, the, the, the right. things that, uh, some sort of things to do. And I think a lot of teachers um, have found that, like I said earlier, attractive, that it's like, oh, oh, I can do that. That I can do. I can do, I can yes. do that. And that will, yes. that will change. Bam. And so I think that's super helpful. If I may offer, I'm absolutely about the how, but I'm also about the what. And I mean by that, I'm also about what you teach, the mathematics, the, the, the way we mathematize, that yep. it's not the same mathematics that were in traditional textbooks where it's about mimicking procedures, that there's more to when we say know your content, know your kids, there's more to know your content than many of us had from our own experiences. And so next week, 
In the next episode, we're going to dive into how we differ a little bit in some ways from what Peter Lilliedahl says, um, and maybe some things that I would not use his work for. So hear me clearly, everybody. I'm not denigrating his work at all. I'm suggesting that there are some places where we might de-emphasize some of the things he said and maybe do things a little bit different sometimes, but love, love the idea of creating a thinking classroom. And I think he's on to some really good ideas. All right, y'all, thank you for tuning in and teaching more and more real math. To find out more about the Math is Figureoutable movement, visit mathisfigureoutable.com. Let's keep spreading the word that math is figureoutable. Thank you for listening and making math more figureoutable. To learn even more, make sure you register for our free challenge at mathisfigureoutable.com slash challenge. You are not going to want to miss the evenings of May 15th through 17th, starting at 7 p.m. Central. Math teaching, math teaching, go register now. That's mathisfigureoutable.com slash challenge. Join us to make math more and more figureoutable. And if you can't join live, register and we'll send you access to the recordings. We'll see you there.